Hello, and welcome back to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup, and I have to start by saying thank you, thank you, thank you so much to everybody who's been listening, uh, to everybody who's joined the Facebook group, Behind the Walls podcast, if you're looking for it, who's given me feedback. I really appreciate it. And I've been really pleased with how many people are listening. We have listeners in the UK, Australia, and Japan, if you can believe it. <laughs> this is amazing. And I really can't thank you enough. So stay tuned for special thanks at the end of the episode for people who've already shared the podcast page with other people. Today is part two of the patients and staff of Oregon State Hospital. In the last episode, we featured the story of the Applegate family who began as trailblazers of the Oregon Trail, and then later some family members spent the remainder of their lives at the hospital. In this episode, we'll begin with some shallow dives of some early patients and staff. Since there isn't a lot of information about these folks, I'll offer brief overviews of their time at the hospital. Then I'll do two slightly longer tales of men who stayed at the hospital. As I'm quickly learning with this podcast, there is so much to say about the history and people of Oregon State Hospital. I've decided to add a third episode about the people of the hospital that focuses on the hospital escapes. So for those of you who love true crime, that episode is for you. So stay tuned. Uh, again, for this episode, I'll be relying heavily on the book Inside Oregon State Hospital by Diane L. Gores Gardner, and I'll also draw information from the Oregon State Hospital Museum website. Trigger warnings for this episode include death by suicide and child sexual abuse. Mentions of these topics will be kept as brief as possible, but please be aware that they're present. I'll give you a heads up before each one in case you want to skip ahead. So... Our first story is about Dr. Clara Montague Davidson, the first woman physician at Oregon State Insane Asylum. This woman, to put it bluntly, was a badass. I really wish I had more information on here. But here's what we know. She was born in Vancouver, Washington in 1863. She got married at age 19 to James Davidson. About seven years into their marriage in 1889, James and Clara's daughter Genevieve died of some mysterious fever, probably meningitis. Her death inspired Clara to go study medicine. She was enrolled at the University of Oregon Medical School over the 1890 to 1891 school year and then transferred to the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, which is now called Drexel University College of Medicine. It's really unknown why she transferred, although some people have speculated that she may have been bullied at U of O for being a woman, or maybe she felt more comfortable at an all-woman's school, or maybe she believed the education was better. But regardless of the reason, Dr. Davidson graduated in 1893, suited for work in Oregon. She seemed especially with challenging patients, since she worked in a rough, low-income area of Philadelphia during her training. In an article she wrote for the magazine The Saturday Night around 1894, Dr. Davidson recall, recalled treating patients in the Sweaters District of Philadelphia, which she called the worst part of the city. She noted, quote, Although the doctor lady is always respected, even in the worst quarter, yet my heart failed me as I thought of the narrow streets, the dark underground cellars, and the drunken, cursing men and women I would have to meet, end quote. And certainly for a highly educated, 
married, presumably wealthier woman of the 1890s, being in a sketchy part of a large city might have been extra frightening, but Dr. Davidson didn't seem to be deterred by it. After returning to Oregon, she began her residency at the Oregon State Insane Asylum sometime around 1894. I should point out that at this period, the American Medical Association didn't allow membership to women, yet Dr. Davidson practiced at the asylum despite this. She was also given the lesser title of Lady Assistant Physician. Dr. Davidson clearly recognized some of the inequalities that continue to persist today, such as pay gaps. She was earning $50 per month, plus room and board. Although I couldn't find any comparable salary for a male physician at the same time, I did find that Dr. Calbreath earned over $200 a month, plus room and board, only five years later. So even if we factored in minor inflation, this would still be a considerable wage gap. On September 1st, 1895, Dr. Davidson sent a letter to the asylum board asking for either a pay raise or the acceptance of her resignation. Like I said earlier, it was pretty badass of her to ask for equal pay, especially in 1895. But, of course, the board denied her pay raise and accepted her resignation. Not to be deterred, however, Dr. Davidson went on to become the first woman doctor in Yamhill County and established her own private practice in Newburgh, where I got my doctorate. And she worked there for the next 10 years until she died unexpectedly of blood poisoning in 1905. She was 42 years old. During the time that Dr. Davidson worked at the asylum, newspapers were openly publishing the names and ages of patients admitted to the hospital, along with their reasons for admission. I can only imagine that this would have been gold for the town gossips. Like, did you hear that Christian Schroeder went back to the insane asylum? They say he's very violent. (laughs) Many admissions were related to drug and alcohol abuse, or what we would call today uh, developmental disorders, so likely autism, intellectual disability, that sort of thing. But a few of the admissions were a little more unusual. Here are a few of the entries for admissions between 1888 and 1900. Mary Matthews, age 18, was overstudious. Mrs. George Elliott was a weak, decrepit old lady. A deaf and dumb boy, no name, no age. Jones, just Jones, captured with a lasso. Mrs. Lucci, age 43, suffered a sunstroke 10 years ago. Barbara Melcher for nude exhibition. Ambrose Cox, age 78, a spiritualist, whatever that means. I also want to add a quick plug here for the Oregon State Hospital Museum, which is on the grounds of the Salem campus in the old Kirkbride building. When you visit, you see a breakdown of the reasons for admission for men and women, as well as the patient's various vocations. At the time of this recording in January 2023, the museum is open Thursday through Saturday from noon to 4 p.m., or you can visit their website at oshmuseum.org. If you want to support the museum, you can become a member for $35 a year for individuals or $55 a year for families. This this is not a paid ad. It's just fun to visit. The newspapers also listed the deaths by suicide at the hospital. This is what I find to be most disturbing, and I'm not going to read any of the entries. 
What I will say is that some of the death, some of the deaths occurred at the hospital while others occurred after a patient had discharged. In a few cases, the patient had escaped and later died. I just, I don't understand what would compel a newspaper to think that suicides of psychiatric patients would be appropriate journalistic fodder for the public. And just thank goodness for HIPAA. <laughs> if you think back to the beginning of episode one, you may remember the story of Charity Lamb, the pioneer woman who killed her abusive husband. She was initially put in prison and then later moved to the Hawthorne Asylum because the prison wasn't really set up for women. That problem continued over the following decades. Only 23 women were sentenced to prison between 1854 and 1900. Most of those women spent only a few months in the penitentiary. They were incarcerated in a cell behind the warden's office alone with almost no access to exercise, sunshine, or company. That sounds miserable and dangerous, especially if a staff member wanted to take advantage of a woman inmate. One of those incarcerated women was 51-year-old Emma Hanna. Emma had been a mother and housewife until someone in her Lynn County neighborhood began leaving notes in her mailbox suggesting that her husband was having an affair with their neighbor Lottie. Emma was known to hate Lottie, who was a twice-divorced single mom whom Emma suspected of having low morals. Her paranoia of Lottie grew until one day in 1895 when she couldn't bear it any longer. She dressed up in her husband's coat, donned a fake mustache, and went over to Lottie's home with her sons, 32 Smith and Wesson. She stormed into the house where she pistol whipped and shot Lottie in the head. She was later sentenced to life in prison for for the brutal murder. But like the other women sentenced to prison, Emma ended up in solitary confinement because there was nowhere else for her to go. Assuming she would do better at the asylum, Emma was transferred in March of 1897. Her admission record reads as follows, quote, imagines people, uh, imagines people are all trying to kill her. Medium nutrition, eats well and probably sleeps well, bowels regular, talks of delusions, of persecution, and of suspicions regarding others in a very uncertain way, creating a doubt as to her entertaining them. March 24th, 1897. And then later, continues to be slightly improved in her physical health and efforts to feign insanity, while at the same time there appears to be an underlining morbid condition which probably asserts its strength with varying force at different times, converses coherently, and always within the lines of at least possibility, without the display of any excess of emotion. Hence, with that insane condition present, she is a dangerous person. April 27th, 1897, end quote. Emma's admission to the asylum meant that she now joined her sister-in-law, who has the best name of this entire episode, Queen America Hannah. (laughs) Queen had been committed to the, the Hawthorne Asylum, in 1873, so 24 years earlier, with a diagnosis of chronic melancholia and had been part of the first group of women transferred to the new asylum in 1883. Queen remained at the asylum until her death on October 20th, 1905 from apoplexy, likely from a stroke. And a plane just went on overhead. Emma stayed almost three years at the asylum and was transferred back to the penitentiary. 
She didn't do well back in the prison and returned to the asylum in June 1900. Her husband, who may or may not have been having an affair when Emma killed her neighbor, wanted out of the marriage. Unfortunately for him, quote, it was against Oregon law in 1903 for a spouse to receive a divorce just because the husband or wife was in an asylum. John Hanna, Emma's husband, found a way around the law by declaring that Emma was a prisoner on January 24, 1903, when he filed a petition for divorce, end quote. Emma remained at the asylum until her death from a cerebral hemorrhage in June 1933. She was 86 years old and had lived at the hospital for 33 years and one day. In October 1899, 17-year-old Nora Etta Cole was arrested for the grotesque crime of living with her boyfriend. The records also point out that Nora and her partner had low intelligence, so it's possible they may have had a developmental disorder. But anyway, both Nora and her partner, William Perkins, were charged with, quote, lewd cohabitation. This excerpt from their indictment is particularly colorful, quote, the said William Perkins and Nora Etta Cole on the seventh day of October, 80. 80- A.D. 1899, in said county of Douglas and the state of Oregon, then and there being, and then and there not being married to each other, did then and there unlawfully and wrongfully, lewdly and lasciviously cohabit and associate together, end quote. They were also charged with stealing a horse, but that indictment is not nearly as interesting. But I'm sure then and there, was in there a few times. Nora pled guilty to the horse thievery charge and was sentenced to a year in prison. What authorities hadn't realized, and Nora herself may not have realized, was that 17-year-old Nora was already three months pregnant. There hadn't been a pregnant woman in prison before, so authorities weren't really sure what to do with her. She was transferred to the insane asylum on December 21st, 1899, in order to get access to medical care. Gore's Gardner wrote, quote, When the baby was born, it was alive but deformed, probably because of severe malnutrition uh, Nora had experienced while pregnant. One leg was longer than the other, one foot larger, both hands lacked fingers, and the child had a distinctly pointed head. As there was no place to keep a patient's baby at the asylum, Dr. Calbreath persuaded a Catholic orphanage to accept it. What became of the baby after that is unclear, but it's doubtful it lived very long, end quote. If anyone has more of a medical background than I do, and these birth deformities sound familiar, let me know what you think. I would love to have a modern possible explanation of what happened to Nora's baby. Let's speculate clinically together. Uh, Nora loved the asylum and swore it was the best home she'd ever had. She enjoyed the opportunity to socialize with other women, the various entertainments, and the food. For the first time in her life, people were kind to her. In her thankfulness, she became a hard worker and was always happy and smiling. It became her first school and her haven. Even after her prison term expired and it was recognized that she didn't have a mental illness, Dr. Calbreath let Nora remain because she was incapable of earning her own living. So this sort of sounds like a modern day conservatorship where someone gets committed due to 
uh, essentially extreme danger to self or others or grave disability. They're just incapable of taking care of themselves on their own. Nora wasn't the only under 18 mother to reside at the hospital, though. And this is the section about child sexual abuse. If you'd like to skip forward about three minutes, please feel free. I'll give you a minute to do so. So on November 29th, 1905, Ellen Schultz Wood, known as the Child Bride of St. John's, was admitted to the asylum at age 11. Ellen's father had said that her first attack had occurred when she was five years old. I assume he means psychiatric attack here, but without any other information, I'm going to clinically speculate that her attack may have been a reaction to trauma. Her father seems to have very poor judgment and little sense about how to raise his daughter. Quote, at age 11, Ellen's speech was barely coherent. She wandered away all of the time and was incompetent to take care of herself. And everyone who had known her for the last nine years agreed that she was insane. Yet her father persuaded a judge to perform a marriage ceremony anyway, end quote. Her father persuaded a judge to perform a marriage ceremony to a 38-year-old man. She was 11. That just, it's so, it's so infuriating. Not only the, the age difference, the huge age difference, but also the fact that she's clearly, clearly in some sort of mental distress. Um, again, given the limited information, I'm not sure if she had a developmental disorder of some sort or a true psychotic disorder, or like I also mentioned, maybe it was a trauma reaction to abuse, but I can only imagine that this girl must have been so scared to be forced to marry a man much older than her, and then not long afterward to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital. So I hope for her sake that like Nora, Ellen found the asylum to be a place of refuge where she could begin to heal from her trauma. Five years later in 1910, she was still listed in the asylum census and was reported as being 16 years old and the mother of one living child. There's no information about when she got pregnant or who the father was. I mean, I assume it was her husband, but it's entirely possible it could have been someone else. And I can only assume that like Nora, her child was taken from her as soon as it was born. There wasn't any other information about how long Ellen stayed in, in the asylum or what became of her afterward. All right, as promised, I have two deeper dive stories for you. The first is a patient whose real name we don't know, but he has been given the identity James R. Robolette. Here's what we do know about James. In 1936, he was feeling hopeless, discouraged, and depressed. I'll let him speak for himself in a moment about the reasons why he felt this way. But to be honest, they kind of sound familiar, probably to many of us, especially those of us who feel compelled to achieve and overachieve. But because therapy and mental health treatment weren't accessible to most people during this era, James's family knew something had to be done for him to get better. So they checked him into Oregon State Hospital. 
As I mentioned in episode one, voluntary admissions, including voluntary by family members, were, fam- were fairly rare. I'd like you to hear about James's experience in his own words. This is from the Oregon State Hospital Museum website. It's an excerpt from an article in the Sunday Oregonian dated June 14, 1936, that was written by James R. Roblet and a psychiatrist from the hospital. But I'm only using James's words here. Here I am in an insane asylum, the place some people refer to as the booby hatch and the bug house. The surprising thing is that I don't feel too badly about it. I came here not too willingly, and though I look forward, hopefully, to the day when I can walk forth again entirely free, it isn't as bad as it's cracked up to be. It's no bad bed of roses either. I probably needed to come here. I was in a hopeless, discouraged state of mind. It was a temporary insanity, I suppose, brought on by several factors. I had been working too hard, doing brain work and not getting sufficient exercise. I had lived in a small room, cramped and low-ceilinged. I imagine I had a case of claustrophobia, the maddening feeling of being walled in on all sides to help the breakdown along. If I could have left town for a week or so, I might have recovered. But... I was in an intensely nervous condition, and my relatives and friends didn't know how to help me much. Finally, it was decided that I should be sent to the state hospital. My relatives, knowing no other course, arranged a commitment. As we started out to town, I fancied I heard the young woman in the back seat sobbing softly and wondered if she knows the tragedy of my case. My broken elderly parents left without the meager support I had afforded. There is hardly anything as tragic as insanity, yet life is full of tragedies and still goes on somehow. I thought of little on the trip to Salem. I remember having a pang of regret as we passed through a little town that was the scene of my latest labors. Most of the way I rested and even slept some. It's as almost good to get away. When we arrived here at the state hospital, it was early in the afternoon. The sun was shining and the grounds looked very green and lovely. The Oregon State Hospital is located at the end of an attractive park of rolling lawns, stately trees, and well-kept flower beds. The first impression of the three-story main building, the original parts were erected in 1883, is one of immensity. To a person walking down Center Street, the side of the building facing that way with its barred windows, the building seems to stretch for blocks. That is only one wing of a building that houses most of the institution's approximately 2,400 patients. The main building also houses the administration offices. Across Center Street is a modern treatment and psychopathic hospital, housing 160 patients in the receiving and hospital wards. More of the plant stretches out behind the main building, the central heating plant, laundry, greenhouses, and a separate building where tubercular and diabetic patients are located. Further back, another building is being constructed. It will be another hospital building to relieve the overcrowding in the other two hospitals. They gave me the usual medical tests that first day as they do every entering patient. I remember I fainted when they gave me a blood test. I was weak and tired and they had me stand up for the test. When the nurse jammed the needle in my arm, I fainted dead away. It was just like the lights had gone out suddenly. I'd never fainted before in my life. 
Then there's another test to determine whether the patient is syphilitic, as many are here. Patients not too far gone with syphilis are given the malarial treatment. The malaria germs are injected into the patient's blood, giving him a malarial fever that kills the spirochetes, the parasitical causes of syphilis. Right now, four or five patients on the ward are in bed with malaria. Of course, I was given an x-ray and also a fluoroscopic examination. My heart and lungs were all right. After all that was over, the attendant asked me if I wanted to go to bed. It was still mid-afternoon, but I decided to rest. They put me in a corner room in Ward C, the receiving ward. Every patient that comes to the hospital goes first to Ward C. It's an observation ward, and according to hospital gossip, the second best ward in the institution. Like this one, Ward D, is light and airy, almost like a well-regulated but not too fancy hotel. In Ward C, you are apt to see the whole gamut of insanity. Some of the patients there are violently insane and even dangerous, but they're locked in. Some of them scream, but you soon become accustomed to that. Some talk incessantly, often choosing nighttime for their loudest tirades. The rules are less strict in Ward C than in any other ward. Because it is in an observation ward, the patient is allowed a good deal of rope to find himself. I went to bed. My room was small, but very clean and tidy, very much like a room in any hospital except that the walls are barred. Lying in bed, I was quite despondent. I had little hope and was greatly discouraged. I was bitterly unhappy that this should have happened. I suppose I was accusing myself, which may have been the major element in my condition. It was a case of over-refined conscientiousness. I was virtued overdone to such an extent that it had to become a vice. I had worked so darn hard that I had made an awful mess of things. The first incident I remember was an old man, a regular patient in the ward, coming in and fussing about the bed. He was tucking the sheets in and smoothing the covers. He was trying to be helpful. Incidentally, most of the patients are very kind to each other and help one another out in many ways. There is some bickering, of course, as are there always and when men congregate in confinement. But I wanted them to be left alone, and the old man's helpfulness irritated me. I said nothing, and he went away. Then two more old men came in and looked at me, just staring and saying nothing. Presently, I went to sleep. Now, James would have met with a doctor as soon as possible, although with about 1,000 admissions per year and only one doctor for every 334 patients, over twice the recommended amount, um, he may have known this would have taken a while. In psych hospitals today, psychiatrists meet with patients on the day of their admission, often within the first hour of their arrival. For James, he had to wait until dinner to be seen. Here he is again. I got up in time for dinner. I went out and down in the parlor, was rather frightened and felt very much like a stranger in a strange place, which I was, of course. My first meal in the asylum was quite strange. I didn't know anybody and kept very quiet during the meal. The dining room in Word C is much like a restaurant or hotel dining room. We sit four at a table and are served by other patients who are in the dining room duty. I have worked there. Sometime during the first day, I had a conference with the doctor on the ward. 
I didn't behave very well and didn't answer his questions, but rambled on about whatever came to my head. After I had finished the conference with the doctor, I went back to my room. Almost immediately, a fine-looking young fellow, also a patient, popped in the door. He was quite rational and began berating me for the way I had answered the doctor's questions. Apparently, he had overheard this conference. He gave me some very good advice. He said, you do just what the doctor says if you want to get out of here. And really quickly, before I go on, um, I want to offer a trigger warning for death by suicide. So if you'd like to skip forward about a minute, feel free to do so now. The patient who advised me in such an irritated fashion was just trying to be friendly, and we later became great friends. He suffered from the delusion that he was about to die of pneumonia. He was a strong, healthy man and hadn't a sign of illness on him, but every once in a while, he would insist on going to bed where he prepared to die of pneumonia. Sometimes it was what he called quick TM, and I couldn't figure out what that means, uh, that was going to be his death. One day, he hung himself in a closet with a leather strap. He must have wanted to die very badly, for he had to hold his feet off the floor until he strangled to death. I went to bed that night with a few shivers. I had spent my first day in an insane asylum, and I was sure I didn't like it. Everybody looked all right, but I had been there long enough to know that most of them were crazy as loons. I lay in bed thinking it over. I was frightened, wondering about what would happen the next day, when I would get out, if ever. Presently, I went to sleep. I was awakened by piercing shrieks and screams that set my teeth on edge. I heard attendants running down the hall, and I knew that some patient was having an attack. I sat up in bed. I was sweating, and I was plain scared. The article ends by saying that James's story will continue the following Sunday, but I wasn't able to locate it. So if anyone out there finds it, please let me know. I would love to read the second half. After James met with the doctor, and based upon the doctor and other staff's observations, the doctor would then prescribe the treatment to be used. For James R. Roblet, this included hydrotherapy treatments for relaxation twice per week. And that part sounds pretty darn good to me. Gores Gardner describes it as follows, quote, He was given a steaming hot foot bath before being enclosed in a Turkish bath contraption referred to as a heat cabinet. After the sweat box, he had another bath and a massage. That sounds lovely. The next part, not so much. Quote, Finally, an attendant used a fire hose from about 15 feet away to spray water up and down his back, end quote. Yeah, no thanks to that. James soon got a job at the hospital. He started as an assistant duster in the parlor of Ward C and worked up to head duster after two weeks. His next work assignment was washing dishes in the, in the dining room. Later, he worked in the hydrotherapy unit and the surgery unit. After about a month, James moved to Ward D and was assigned to a room with another male patient. The small sleeping rooms bordered a, a wide hall with polished floors. It had a pleasant parlor where the men played cards. Ward D had quieter patients than Ward C. The men chatted, watched other patients play softball or play cards. James was given permission to go where he wanted on the hospital grounds. His only restriction barred him from entering the women's wards and the wards housing violent patients. 
of course, women were not given the same privileges that men had. James didn't stay long at Oregon State Hospital, but it certainly seemed to be long enough. At the end of his hospitalization in 1936, he said, quote, I'm hoping to get out pretty soon. I think I'm completely cured, but then nearly everybody here will tell you that he's not crazy and never should have been sent here in the first place. I have hope, though, that my incarceration won't last much longer, end quote. Since he was given a pseudonym to protect his identity, it's unknown when James R. Roblet discharged from the hospital or what life was like for him afterward. I hope he found the peace he was searching for. The next story is a story of Reverend David C. Snyder. David Snyder was born sometime around 1898 and grew up in Muncie, Indiana. He earned an AB degree from Mount Morris College in Illinois, where he met and married his wife, Bertha Brown. They had two daughters, Letha and Leota. Reverend Snyder was pastor for the Church of the Brethren in either Wisconsin or Iowa. Different sources said different things, um, but for sure, Minnesota and California before moving to Salem in Oregon in 1942. His obituary later stated that he was the pastor of a church in Newburgh until he retired in 1947 due to his health. What it did not say was that Reverend Snyder was suffering from overwork and exhaustion. Perhaps unsure of where to go to get help, Reverend Snyder went to see a doctor. He later said the physician tricked him into signing paperwork for voluntary admission to Oregon State Hospital. And so on July 8, 1947, Reverend Snyder was admitted to Oregon State Hospital for the first time. Unlike James R. Roblet, who saw a physician the first day of his admission, as was protocol, Reverend Snyder waited three weeks to see a doctor. Reverend Snyder experienced several horrifying incidents during his first admission. First, following a session in the hydrotherapy tub, Reverend Snyder was forced to walk 150 feet naked and cold from the tub back to his room, which later resulted in a bad chest cold. There aren't many details about this incident, except that a nurse later broke protocol by giving him medications for his cold. A month later, several drunken attendants tried to break his bedroom door down. Fortunately, the day crew came on duty and scared the drunks away. Snyder watched an old man bleed to death when the man fell out of bed and injured his head. The attendant in the office, one of the same group that had tried to attack Snyder in his room, was too drunk to hear the man's cries for help. Reverend Snyder was discharged on September 9, 1947. There wasn't much information about his life during this time. One of his daughters had gotten married the previous year in 1946, so perhaps he was welcoming grandchildren into the family in the years to follow. But in 1954, Reverend Snyder was admitted to Oregon State Hospital for a second time, again on a voluntary basis, but presumably not tricked into it this time. Once again, the experience was traumatic. Reverend Snyder was placed on Ward J. While there, he observed an attendant drinking on the job. It's unclear if Snyder said something to the attendant about it, but the attendant worried that Snyder would expose him. So he locked Reverend Snyder in solitary confinement. When Snyder was eventually released, the attendant refused to let him use the bathroom and a fight ensued with five other patients beating Snyder up. Snyder later said, 
quote, the outcome of the fracas resulted in my being forced against my will into Ward M. There I was given two of those severe shock treatments on my first day in the ward. I was given a series of these. The same device is used almost to the exact copy as is used in the electrocution of criminals, just not quite as much juice, that's all, end quote. Snyder said that these shock treatments were often used as a way to punish him and other inmates. He also said the pills he took gave him the shakes, so he only pretended to swallow them. He was discharged the same year in 1954 on an unknown date. Reverend Snyder would return for his third and final time in 1957, now 10 years after his first admission to the hospital. By this time, Dr. Dean Brooks had become superintendent two years prior, leading to some positive changes around the hospital that Reverend Snyder noticed. We addressed some of these issues in episode two. Open wards had been introduced the year before in 1956. Physical restraints were used less often. The food and rations had improved. Even the hospital itself looked and smelled better. And this is remarkable since the hospital was quick, quickly reaching its maximum capacity. You may recall that it was 1958. The hospital reached, reached its historic high of 3,545 patients. When Snyder was admitted this time, he was given a job. Actually, all patients at this time were given jobs as part of their treatment. Reverend Snyder had an injured knee and fell while on his job, resulting in him requiring the use of a wheelchair. Details were unclear, but apparently staff were unable to make accommodations for him in his wheelchair, and he was required to work similarly to everyone else. But despite this, Reverend Snyder had good things to say about the employees and the attendants. They were only required to have an eighth grade education and were given a week's training course before working in the hospital. Can you imagine? Psych techs today go through an entire like one or two year long program in order to get licensed to work in the hospital. But I suppose with over 3000 patients and high turnover rates, quick training was essential. Reverend Snyder seemed to appreciate what was expected of these workers. He said, quote, they are supposed to be able to care for the patients in their charge with the utmost concern for their welfare, always to be patient with them, to be sympathetic, kind, and devoted to the utmost possible advancement of the patient toward rehabilitation, end quote. Snyder believed that staff were hampered by a, a lack of decent equipment and by rigid rules and routines. And I want to go off on a really quick tangent here. Sorry about staffing at this time. Remember that there are about 3,500 patients at the hospital. Notes indicate that there was one psychologist for every 2,200 patients. But in episode two, I mentioned there was only one psychologist working at the hospital in 1957. So what happens to the, the remaining 1,300 patients? Would they be seen by a psychologist at all? And this is what truly baffles me. And I don't know how they would have managed care. I have about 40 patients on my caseload at any given time, and that's pretty easy to manage. But 2,200 would be impossible. If I met with each patient individually, I could see six patients per day, one time per year for all 2,200. I don't know how effective that one psychologist could have been at that time or what they could have even offered to so many patients, but that had to feel 
overwhelming and exhausting for that one psychologist. Uh, Reverend Snyder wrote about his experiences at Oregon State Hospital in an article for the Oregon Journal. At the end of his article, he made eight observations and suggestions regarding his time at the hospital. One, the attitude toward the patients had improved from 1947 to 1957. Great, cool, I like that one. Two, Oregon State Hospital needed to increase staff training to reduce the use of restraints. And hopefully that one changed since the staff definitely needed more than a week for training. Number three, Oregon State Hospital needed to increase physician contact with patients. And actually, Dr. Brooks hired more clinical staff that same year in 1957 to improve the staff to patient ratio. So check on that one. Number four, Oregon State Hospital needed to increase the use of hydrotherapy and decrease the use of electroshock therapy. And actually, both of those treatments were decreased within the first several years of Dr. Brooks's administration, even though the hydrotherapy treatment seems like it would have been helpful and relaxing. Number five, Oregon State Hospital needed to reduce nurses and attendants adherence to routine and doctor's orders. Uh, you don't know about this one. <laughs> I generally want nurses to follow doctor's orders, please and thank you very much. Um, but I think he's asking for some flexibility in adherence to the rules. Um, that can be a really slippery slope. Um, anyone who's worked in medicine knows how that goes. You give one person one thing, the next person wants the same, etc. Uh, number six, Oregon State Hospital needed to remove locked doors from all but the most violent patients. Again, I, I don't know about this one either. There are, there are a lot of reasons why people need to be on locked units beyond, beyond acts of physical violence. Um, for, for instance, dementia patients could wander off their unit, get lost. Um, an erotomanic patient could begin stalking a staff member or another patient. Uh, it sounds like these patients had a fair amount of freedom at the hospital, but I'm sure any amount begins to feel claustrophobic after a while. Number seven. Oregon State Hospital needed to increase appropriations to the hospital for salaries and education. I like this one. <laughs> he recognized that the staff needed to be paid more and trained more. It's a hard job and turnover can be really high if the compensation isn't also high. And lastly, number eight, Oregon State Hospital needed to increase volunteer help at the hospital. I like this suggestion though, it would be difficult to implement today for safety and security reasons. Um, back in the 50s, when church groups were organizing parties and bringing homemade baked goods, everything seemed okay, but who knows what kind of contraband may have been brought in um, intentionally or accidentally. Today, we certainly wouldn't take that risk. I would hope. <laughs> Reverend Snyder discharged that same year in 1957 and returned to his life in the community. His civil rights were all restored, including his right to vote, to hold public office, and to enter into contracts. Snyder remained married to his wife, Bertha, until his death in September 1970. He was 72 years old. And that concludes part two of the people of Oregon State Hospital. Obviously, there are so many more stories to tell. If you'd like to learn more about the patients who learned at the hospital, check out the book Inside Oregon State Hospital by Diane L. Gorsgardner. 
I'm also going to include a bonus episode sometime this week for the true crime fans out there. So like I mentioned at the very beginning, um, watch for an episode about the escapes from Oregon State Hospital. There are, unfortunately, more escapes than I can discuss in one episode. So basically, I chose the ones that were most interesting to me. So stay tuned for that episode. Lastly, a quick special thanks to everyone who has shared the podcast with other people, but especially to Tarna, the freaking rock star, Crystal, and my dad for inviting people to the Facebook group. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup. Cover image is by Christopher Payne. Check out my website at behindthewallspodcast.buzzsprout.com. Follow the podcast and learn more on Facebook at Behind the Walls Podcast and Instagram at Behind the Walls Pod. For questions or recommendations, email me at behindthewallspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can find new episodes every Monday on Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find and listen to the show, and I would be so grateful. Please stay tuned for more episodes of Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Until next time.